Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Move, a podcast which is hosted by me, Jamie Lang, and my business partner, Ed Williams. Now in 2012, Ed and I founded our confectionery business, Candy Kittens, a business which I'd actually dreamed of having ever since I was six years old. And honestly, we wouldn't have achieved half of what we've been able to without all the amazing tips and advice we picked up along the way. Move stands for Motivation, Opportunity, Vision, Entrepreneurship. And each episode of the podcast, we're bringing you the stories of founders, innovative thinkers, entrepreneurs and winners who show us all what's possible with hard work and focus. So whatever you're moving towards, we hope today's guests will open your eyes to what you can achieve. This is Move. Edward, hello. Hello, how are we doing? Good, buddy. How are you? Good. I'm loving January so far. Good new start for the new year. Feeling energised. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I like January that much. Really? Well, the weather's not too good. Not too well, good. You're I'm looking more quite tanned. Of, yeah, I'm a little bit tanned. I'm more of like a... I like May. Really? May. May kind of guy. Okay. May kind of person. Hey, but I am excited for our guest today. Who do we have on Move Podcast? Today, we have an amazing lady. She founded a company called Elvi. Her name is Tanya, and she has got a pretty cool story. Tanya achieved a PhD and worked in women's health for over 10 years. Now, when Tanya became a mum, she realised that the market for women's health technology was hugely undeserved. This drove her to make the jump into entrepreneurship. Tanya's been a real game changer in the category. She's launched two products since they founded the LV in 2013. The LV Trainer and the LV Pump. Now, these aren't products that Jamie and I are very familiar with ourselves. But I'm looking forward to finding out more about these today. Yeah. Now, in April this year, LV secured the largest funding fund in femtech history. This enabled the company to grow to nearly 100 people and open offices in four locations. They continue to break, actually smash, in our opinion, the taboos within this industry, encouraging really healthy conversations around the stigmatized issues in women's health leading LV to be recognised as Brave Brand of the Year in 2019. I'm excited for this one, Ed. Well, I think it's about time we go and learn about some femtech. Here we go, Ed, intro the podcast. Okay, today on Move, we have Tanya Bola. Tanya, before we kick things off, I just want to apologise for two things. Uh, firstly, I apologise that I was late. I was I was 14 minutes late, which I'm I never normally late. It's usually me that's late, actually. <laughs> yeah, so you, you are, uh, what Ed does is he does one of these uh, amazing things where he says, I'm five minutes away. It's half an hour. Eternal optimist. <laughs> it's half an hour. And I want to apologise. Secondly, I have a hole in my trousers and I've yeah. ripped it on my vest for coming over here. So I, I totally apologise that I'm late <laughs> and now I have a rip in my trousers. Exposing was, yourself, yeah. Well, yeah. We'll Talking a lot about genitals today, weren't we? So, well, uh, hey, hole hey, listen, in your genital area. Looks, I uh, think, I think <laughs> subconsciously, uh, that's probably why I ripped. Uh-huh. I thought, well, you know, if we're going to talk about genitals. And, we're going to talk uh, about men's health. Yeah, and men's health and <laughs> things like that. Uh, but how are you? Are you well? Yeah, I'm really good. Great to be here. Thank you. You're you're probably incredibly busy, right? 
oh yeah, today's St. James's Palace in the next hour and three events this evening. And no, I, this week's particularly busy. I don't know why event organizers, I think they always organize around the same dates, but uh, yeah. things have, yeah, have been dates. taken off at LV, which has been very exciting. Yeah, amazing. We were, ju- I mean, we were just talking yeah. just before we started about that and we'll probably come on to how busy things have got for you. But maybe for our listeners at home, you can give a quick overview of what LV is and what LV does. Yeah, so uh, I started LV six years ago. So uh, it's been, you know, I'd say the first five years have been a really hard slog, but now it's beginning to to get uh, to a really fun place. But hard slog, but hard and exciting. So what LV is, we launched Connected Devices for Women's Health. So if you say tech and you say women, it's never been an exciting place. I think often people have turned something into a piece of jewellery, maybe turned it pink, changed the colour. So we're all about actually women deserve better tech. So we've launched Connected Devices that there's hardware and software elements dealing with neglected issues. So our latest product is a wearable silent breast pump. So again, something that nobody really thinks about, an intimate product for women, uh, which we launched at London Fashion Week last year. So model walked down the catwalk while she was breast pumping. So all about technology for women's empowerment. And obviously, I mean, that um, London Fashion Week launch was a great example of how you've gone on to break the taboos within women's health. And that's obviously an important part of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So well, our other product as well, which is a really taboo issue, is around pelvic floor health. Yep. Uh, well, it used to be taboo before LV, but it's basically uh, to do with your vagina strength. So people think it's either to do with sex or you end up with these quite yucky health problems. So again, we thought not only do we need better tech, we need to actually change the whole conversation around this. So it was about launching it in gyms and, you know, launching it more as a lifestyle product. But, but can I, because um, uh, you probably haven't guessed, I'm a man. Um, <laughs> and... I, as a male, I don't, I wouldn't see it as a, as a taboo subject. Why is, why is it a taboo subject to talk about these things or, or to, to be yeah. in that industry? Why is that taboo? I think there's several reasons. I mean, one is I think we live in such a PC world that we forget that men and women are different physiologically and there's mm-hmm. specific life stages that women go through. So menstruation, pregnancy, postnatal, menopause. And we don't talk about that and because we don't talk about it. Therefore, um, there's not been much technology. But the real taboo, yeah, yeah. So what is, I think we need to take a step back. So what is taboo? You know, ultimately... I think society plays a role in determining more. So, you know, what is right and what is wrong. And a taboo is something that's dictated that we shouldn't talk about, something that's shameful. And, uh, you know, over centuries and across many cultures, you know, what are some of the key taboos? What would you say? Sex and actually femininity and vaginas. You know, vagina is a very taboo part of a woman's body because it's like two sides of a coin, right? You have your sexuality and it's to do with motherhood. And I think uh, a lot of men and societies grapple with how to, to reconcile those two things. The good news is things are changing, right? So like Gen Z and even millennials are much more open. And particularly with social, people are sharing a lot more. You know, you see women, part of this whole Me Too movement has been about saying, I'm a woman, why should I be embarrassed that I bleed? Why should I be embarrassed that I have a mm. vagina? Why should I be embarrassed that I pee myself after I give birth? But these are still taboos that, are, that, are, that need to be broken. I, I, I totally agree with you. My uh, my sister in law had a um, ha, has recently had a baby about nine months ago, um, a little baby girl. And the the tricky thing that she went through uh, was that, and it was down to a lot of it was down to social media, where um, as a, as a mother you give birth and you 
see on social media and you read different things of people having the most fabulous time and everyone feels comfortable and their child is sleeping and they are feeling fine and they weren't sick at this time and all these different things. And actually you then as the individual feel completely alien. Yeah. You don't understand why you're feeling this way. Actually, she felt isolated. She felt alienated. She felt uh, insecure. She felt overweight. She felt she didn't actually feel any she didn't feel good at any point. She lost actually, um, she didn't like eating food because she constantly felt full, but she felt like she had to eat and all these different things. And no one actually sort of discusses those those sort of uh, things that women go through. Actually, what people talk about is how lovely it is and you're giving birth yeah. and how wonderful mm-hmm. it is. But actually the subjects which are most important, no one touched on. But why don't people touch on those? Why don't people say, you know, I had a terrible time during pregnancy and my... You know, and I bled a lot and I was sick and all these. Why don't people do that? But I don't I, I know you say it's taboo, but perhaps because people don't want to suggest that they are having a tricky time. Yeah, I think there's a negative reinforcing cycle, right? So if there's something that society says we shouldn't talk about it, you're not going to be the only person to talk about it because you're going to be embarrassed and worried that you're going to be judged against, mm. right? But as soon as somebody starts breaking that, like talking is kryptonite to taboo. So if you start talking about it, and then we struggle with this too, like how are we going to get people to talk about vaginal health? You know, they're spending time thinking about what their vaginas look on the outside, they're waxing, but they need to look after their vagina on the inside for important sex and health reasons. So we were like, how do we do it? And actually one of the things we tried this year is like, we thought, well, it has to happen through laughter, comedy. You know, artists are at the edge of uh, pushing the boundaries of what society deems as acceptable or not. So we decided to launch this huge vagina blimp above Edinburgh Fringe Festival this summer. I saw this uh, on Instagram. With quite a few comedians. Because you have to do it through laughter. Like, you need to, because otherwise it just ends up being this self-perpetuating negative, quite serious thing. Particularly, like, in the area we're talking about. I don't know if you're even aware of the health issues women go through. Like, basically. I have have no idea. Honestly, because I... So to be probably to be incredibly naive, I I don't never, have a vagina. I don't have a vagina. <laughs> um, I uh, I don't know much about yeah, a vagina. Um, oh. I've, I, I, yeah, <laughs> weirdly, I, I've never I've never um, I've never got anyone pregnant, as far as I know. I've I've never had a baby, so yeah, I've never yeah. been through yeah. that process at all. So. I the only person I know is like you know my mother. That's the only person I know who who yeah. sort of you know I was when I was you know five years old. I had my little sister. Why didn't my mother did? So it's kind of for me it's totally alien because I don't know yeah. these things. But the crazy thing is it is for women too, right? So like I'm the opposite to you in the sense I have like I had been working in reproductive health. I'd worked in the UN. I had a PhD in HIV prevention. I'd written two books about sex education and sex reproductive health. Mm. And when I got pregnant, I didn't even know what my pelvic floor was. And no women even know what it is. There's no education. Nobody talks about it. And you go through this process, you're suddenly pregnant, just like what you're saying about your your sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah my you, sister-in-law, yeah. Your sister-in-law. Your body just starts changing. All these things start happening to you. And like you said, nobody talks about it. And I think for me, that's what grabbed me. Like, yeah, sure, I now run a big tech company. Sure, it's, you know, wherever we're at with that journey. But actually what really grabbed me was the fact that there's an issue that nobody's talking about. If we just talk about it, that in and of itself is going to make a difference. And talk to me then about that moment, I suppose, that you said you obviously had uh, a career before this yeah. within the industry of, of sorts, now yeah. a shift. But what was it then that you thought, okay, the way to solve this problem is actually starting yeah. a business? What I had, it's funny, yeah, I never, because um, you know, I run a, a tech company, but I'd never worked in tech and I'd never actually worked in the private sector. So it was a big jump. But yeah, yeah. I knew about reproductive health and public health. Um, Sorry, what was your question? Why did what, what, I? So you obviously oh, saw you spotted yeah, yeah. an issue and spotted a problem, yeah. but but coming from yes, uh, the background yeah, yeah. of being an author yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and um, More perhaps it might be 
more of an obvious route to write a book about this or start a campaign or do something that, that was yeah. not in the business world? I mean, I think at heart, I'm an activist. And I think okay. now we can talk about that more openly because people are talking about companies, you know, with purpose and profit. And that's kind yep. of, you know, I honestly just saw a problem that I wanted to solve. So my husband's French, right? So you know how French women are just different to English women. <laughs> I dated a French woman, <laughs> yeah. yes. French women are different, right? So in France, when you have a baby, it's not all about this child. You still have your own identity as a woman and your femininity is important. So there they say, happy woman, happy baby. So actually, once a woman has a baby in France, the government pays for her to have 10 sessions where they try to rehabilitate her body because they recognize the huge physical changes she's been through. So both her pelvic floor, her vagina, her core muscles, everything, recognizing it, they're less taboo in France, they talk about it. So yeah, originally I had the idea, well, why don't we have that model here in the UK? Uh, so maybe you'd even go to like a, a spa and you'd go and have um, pelvic floor examination. So it's trying to normalize it and put it into the yep. gym space. So I wasn't set on tech. I wasn't set necessarily on building a business. I did think about doing it from a philanthropic point of view, but I'd also become completely disheartened by working in the non-for-profit. I think in the for profit, you're designing products that people want to use. And ultimately, with our products, we need women to want to use them, which sounds really basic, but most medical devices are not designed like that. Anyway, cut, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit, basically realized the French model was a bit, uh, you know, it was, it was out of date. Why do women have to go and see a doctor? These days, there's technology that can displace that. So then started looking at what existed in hospitals and basically what was best in class was this barbaric, torturous uh, piece of equipment where you lie on a bed, put your legs up, they put electrodes all over you, really big, uncomfortable vaginal probe, and they hook you up to a machine. And as you exercise your pelvic floor, your vagina, you could see yourself, uh, your pelvic floor muscle in action. Yep. So yes, I had the idea, why don't we just take that horrible hospital thing and turn it into something that you can use at home, could still be good from a scientific point of view, but actually be fun. Like, let's gamify it. So let's just create a personal trainer for your you know, like a pussy gym, basically, which is what we did, right? So you put in LV Trainer, you connect your app, and you get your personalized workouts. And women get really competitive. And it's building on women's psychology. Like, why are you going to keep exercising your pelvic floor if you never know if you're improving, if you never know, you know, what Like what any target? exercise, right? Exactly. Yeah. But but, but uh, I want to know, because that is so interesting, because you, you make it sound so simple, right? You go, well, I saw a problem. Um, I wanted to change it, so I went and did it. But, but that's not... Uh, that is not as easy as you're saying it is. You did say at the beginning that it took a while to get that it was six years of slogging and yeah. different things. But you spent 10 years in healthcare before yep. that. How did that initially start? Where did you start at the very beginning? Yeah. What, what were you doing to, to yeah. begin with? What age did you go into it? Where did you start? What area did you go into? And why did you want to do it? Why Health did you want to get into healthcare to into, begin with? I should never. Yeah, it's a good question. I, um, I think for me, it was probably when I was about 17, and it was nothing to do with health so much, but it was kind of, uh, it'd been about two years since my mum had died, and I'd had a lot of taboo issues in my childhood, so mental health problems, my mum had died, addiction, and when I was trying to really understand all of that, I think that is really when I, it gave me a purpose in life, like I knew that I wanted to go out and talk about the things nobody else wants to talk about, because I don't think you just wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'm going to walk into a room of tech engineers and talk about vaginas when none of them want to hear about that. Um, so, yeah, so that's when I started working more on uh, HIV prevention because obviously HIV was a sexually transmitted infection in Africa and nobody could talk about sex. So then I started talking about sex education. So I think that was the one thing that kind of I jumped around. And then I had this idea that going to work in the UN would help me save the world and 
found it to be this kind of bureaucratic, Kafkaesque nightmare. Uh, and so it kind of worked at international development, become quite disillusioned with how slow the pace of change was. And then realizing that, the, you know, from an intellectual point of view, but technology is amazing. It has the potential to help people at such a big scale and displace the doctor-patient. So all of that coming together and then going through that personal experience of getting pregnant, it kind of did come to me. Um, but you're absolutely right. You don't just wake up and know how to create uh, what is actually quite a complex piece of technology. It's a waterproof uh, product that you insert inside your body that connects to a phone. Um, so, but basically I was completely naive and I think that's probably quite a good thing, right? When you're an entrepreneur, because otherwise absolutely. you would never do it. Yeah. For us, I mean, I no for idea. our own story, we always say that that naivety in the beginning was our, yeah. our biggest strength. Yeah. Um, yeah, I gave, I gave it. I gave, I was in Oxford Brooks actually, weirdly last night, giving a talk about um, well, not me. Where there was a panel talking about different things, and and I always say that I say naivety is your biggest power. Yeah. And actually, what happens is, and and I and I repeat myself saying this, but I think it is fundamentally important. A lot of people feel like they need to know so much knowledge about the industry they're going into, whether it's selling sweets or, or doing tech, uh, health tech, and all these different things. And you you actually don't because if you do that, then you actually follow a route that ever that you think yeah. you have to do and you don't discover anything new. You know, what you were doing yeah. is you were discovering new things because you had no idea what you were doing. Um, but it's interesting because stereotypically, right, people are pretty selfish. You know, there's a book called There's No Such Thing as Selfless Act. And and you, it seems, you, and especially when you're 17, 18, 19, growing up and you're thinking, you're thinking about, well, I was thinking about how can I, how can I make money? Do you need a coffee? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, okay. No, okay, okay, okay. I know you <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But stereotypically, what people have is that they... Um are selfish, they want to do things for themselves, but you seem like you were the total opposite. You want to actually help individuals. You went in to find out uh, HIV prevention and, and rape cases and all these different things. Where does that come from? Where does that kind of um, uh, philanthropic attitude come from? In me personally? In you, in you personally, yeah. Are you... Com are you never selfless? No, I am. I think I am, but I think I actually you haven't grew met Jamie yeah, before, haven't clearly. Made... <laughs> no, but I think I think selflessness comes from a self-awareness. And I think that I wasn't very self-aware when I was younger. I think that I I went to a private school. I then uh, thought that I had to go down a certain route. I thought my mother said to me, well, you're going to go become a broker because that's what you're going to go yeah. and do. And I thought, OK, well, that's what I'll do then. And I didn't know there was anything else out there. 
I didn't know that I could become an entrepreneur. I didn't know that I could go and set something up, my, up myself. I thought that I have a certain lifestyle and the only way to get to maintain the certain lifestyle is if I go into the city and I become a broker or work for it. That's totally not the case. And I would have been miserably unhappy. <laughs> I would have been yeah, miserably yeah. unhappy, but I didn't realize that. But I feel like you realized that from an early age. I think it was because of, yeah, the my because of my mother dying. I mean, my father always said that um, that if my mother hadn't died, I would have become a banker. So there you go. And oh, I really? I think that was the expectation. If we did well at school, we were going to become, go and work in finance. Totally, right, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is which is ridiculous and actually just incredibly upsetting and depressing yeah. in, in, in a weird way that you feel like you have to go down a certain certain road. But it, it, it's funny because... Um, yeah, I just think that philanthropic attitude you have is 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 rare at, at that age, and and actually it's changing now due to a lot of people and due to social media that people are becoming more self aware of different things. You're seeing things on social media, but and you how know, do you feel about philanthropy now? I think it's I think it's really important. I actually yeah. think it's really important. I think that actually uh, I think that more. You know, look at, you know, this is totally off subject, but, you know, you look at Greta Thunberg and people like this who are doing amazing things out there. And it's about being incredibly selfless. And actually, they just want to help the world and doing things uh, for a better cause. And I think that we have gone through a complete stage. And I think it's, you know, from the 80s on, actually before that. But everyone just was out there for themselves and want to achieve things for themselves. And um, I want to make money and I want to do this and I want to make myself a success. And actually now what people are looking at as is the biggest form of success is actually helping others. I, I, I yeah. saw I saw this thing about karma today, actually, a quote about karma, where um, karma isn't um, isn't going out there. I, I kind of want to read it, actually. Let me see if I can find this one thing just really quickly, uh, which I think is really important. And this is probably getting off topic, but no worries. Um, here we OK. So he said, good karma. Note self. What is my purpose in life? I asked the void. What if I told you that you fulfilled it when you took an extra hour to talk to that kid about her, talk to that kid about his life, said the voice. Or when you paid paid for that young couple in the restaurant or when you saved that dog in traffic or when you tied your father's shoes for him. Your problem is that your purpose with a goal based achievement isn't right. The universe isn't interested in your achievements, just your heart. When you choose to act out of kindness, compassion and love, you are already aligned with your true purpose you need to look at and you don't need to look any further which is kind of true right yeah I mean I think you know yeah absolutely I, mean, I think religious leaders and philosophers have been saying this for a long time but I think you're absolutely right what's changing now is the business world's waking up to the value of having a purpose as well and I think with any change always the pendulum swings you know from one extreme to another and even if I look for myself you're absolutely right like I started off just looking at pure philanthropy I became completely disillusioned with the non-for-profit sector. So when I started LV, and even when we raised like our first five million pounds at our Series A, I never talked that much about the purpose behind it. I, you know, because you can always spin purpose more for commercial uh, goals. So I, I almost felt too shy to talk about that purpose behind it. Instead, I was like, look, this is a massive opportunity, which you know one can spin it like that too, because it is. You know, the female consumer of tech is uh, accountable for eighty-five percent of decision making in the household and has been ignored. So you can you can sell it. As just a complete uh, commercial uh, story. But then more recently, we've just raised our Series B. And I think because we're in a much stronger place, and actually my pendulum itself has swung back to realizing actually the future is to have both purpose and profit. So my narrative has changed. And I've made sure I brought investors who are up for that journey. And what's exciting is that is that that business world has changed, that people want to do that too, because they realize you can't just focus on shareholders if you're looking at long-term growth. You need to look at stakeholders. And, you know, there's more and more of an idea you have to have a triple bottom line, not just profit. You need to look yeah. at environmental and, and social I think, I mean, I think that's, you're right. I think there's been a, a big shift culturally yeah. within business probably over the last 
I don't know, for me, it feels maybe like the last three years of we Candy Kittens have recently, um, we're going through a process to be accredited as a B Corp. And obviously, that is exactly what you're explaining there, business for purpose. And actually, the belief that a business that makes profit is perhaps um, better place to go and tackle those problems, because you're able to attract the very best yeah. people. And it's not just about that philanthropic approach. And, and why don't you explain to the listeners what a B Corp is as well? So B Corp is a business uh, certification, um, essentially a stamp of approval that your business can get that says you are a business that's doing the right thing, not just for profit, but for the planet, the people, the community around you. So some of the best um, businesses in the world, in my opinion, the likes of Patagonia, Warby Parker, Everlane, Ben and Jerry's, all of these guys are certified B Corps. Um, and they have a real purpose. And that's what they're driven by. They're, they're, they're there to solve a problem. Um, and not just make a profit. They put the planet and the, their people, their people first. Um, so yeah, <laughs> a really interesting part of of yeah. uh, that kind of cultural shift, I suppose, in the business landscape at the moment. Yeah. And especially, you know, we find like LV, we have a lot of you know um, people in their twenties working for us, and that's why they're coming to work with us because they want to work in a company that has a purpose. In fact, not just people in their twenties. We've also got a lot of very senior people who are hiring from big tech companies, like from we've just hired from Google, we've just hired from Amazon, we've hired from Apple. And they're just kind of disillusioned working for those tech companies. So, But it's, I think from a consumer level, it still feels like a, a relatively new idea. And you talked about the um, starting the business six years ago. I assume it feels like now if you're going to start LV today, yeah. it would feel like a much easier thing to do because everything I see on social media talks openly about these topics and it feels like there are things that gain traction much more quickly, yeah. like the Moon Cup or whatever it might be. But presumably this was a much harder job when, six years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, like with anything, once, if you're doing something really bold and different, if you're successful, it always feels like a bit of a no-brainer in retrospect, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, now yeah, everyone's yeah. like, God, it's just so obvious. I'm yeah, like, why well, didn't I wasn't... do that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. And lots of, there's a lot of companies, a lot of startups now following uh, in the femtech space, so basically tech for women's health. And we now have a name, it's called femtech, um, yeah. which didn't exist five years ago. So, How do you feel um, about femtech? It's quite an interesting thing in my mind. Is it... Should yeah. it be defined as such a such yeah, I'm group? I'm also pragmatic, which I think is good. You know, as an entrepreneur, you have to be sometimes. Um, as in some people get on their high horse around, well, why do we have tech for women when there's not tech for men and all the rest of it? Yeah. But I think sometimes you need, it's helped to have a category, to have a label for it. You know, obviously it'd be nice if in five years time we don't need the, the title Femtech because it's just mainstream part of what we do. But it's really good because basically... When we started LV, there was Ida Tin out in Berlin. She launched the first period tracking app. And then Kate Ride out in New York was launching a kind of Maven, which is a digital health service for women. So we're all doing completely different things, focusing at different stages of women's life. Where we're all saying the same thing, which is tech needs to better serve the needs of women's health. And because we all did it together and because that came under this umbrella term femtech, it really created momentum. And ultimately, when you're looking for venture funding, you know, investors are... There's a herd mentality, right? There's a real FOMO thing. They like to, to see pattern recognition. They like to know that when they put their money in, there's going to be follow-on money. So suddenly when you have pitch books saying, Femtech, $50 billion industry, that's definitely helpful for LV and it's helpful for anybody who wants to make a moon cup. Yeah. Uh, can I also focus on that sort of idea of being a woman in the business world? Because we have spoken to different uh, uh, founders and entrepreneurs who are women and they uh, they sort of found it a, a struggle sometimes to... Um, uh, look for investment and go into meetings because of uh, they felt intimidated or felt like they were straight away on the back foot. Did you ever feel that way when you were looking for investment or starting your business at all, being a woman? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, being on your back foot, I think everybody always has a back foot. As in, you go to raise money and it's like going into an interview, a job interview, right? They're going to be judging you on Mm -hmm. everything. And it's not just women. It's to do with the color of your skin, the way you talk, unfortunately, the university you went to, whatever it is. Um, And no, yeah, this is not fair. And no, these things don't make any difference to your likelihood of success. But I think it's important to go in there, at least know what those perceptions are likely to be and just make sure you counteract them right from from the gecko. Um, and also, you've got to have – you do have to have skin like a rhino, right? You have to be able to really not – you have to have the self-belief. And I think that's the one thing that cripples uh, women or men. If Every time they get rejected, they keep it – you know, if they take it personally, right? And I was just – honestly, I was a bit kind of crazily zealous about this pelvic floor issue <laughs> to the point where – Lots of guys, uh, male investors, thought we were crazy. Lots of guys thought they shouldn't invest. But I just thought they were stupid, to be honest, because I thought they just don't <laughs> get it. Um, but, yeah, rejection's hard at the beginning, but it is a natural part of what's going to happen. So anybody who's thinking about doing it, you have to just keep going, right? But it, but you're right. There's a For women, well, there's different issues. Again, I would say it's there's never been a better time to be a female entrepreneur. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm always the optimist. But VCs have woken up. There's been so much pressure. Like their deal flow is not diverse enough. So they're actively looking for for more diverse deal flow. But like exactly you're saying, I think a lot of women are going in there lacking the confidence to go in. And you, know, you have to go and you have to hustle. And British culture, you know, we're such a self-deprecating nation. And women often don't lean in. You know, even from school age, girls often, you know, put up their hand a bit slower than than the boys so but these are all things my view is these are skills that can be taught you know mm. I, uh, I hopefully I'm an example of how I knew nothing I mean I literally was again so naive I'd go into my first investor meetings and looking back I just cringe at the kind of stuff I showed them yeah but like, explain this because I think that's what's so useful yeah. for for yeah for, I think these skills you're talking about are so important for the so person important. the listener that sat at home perhaps now thinking about they're, they're just starting yeah. out on their business journey what would your best kind of tips and advice be for no, those, right. those yeah. people. Yeah, because it's not easy to say, oh, you just need to believe in yourself. That's not really very helpful. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that like, self-confidence you need to learn, right? And yeah, that's quite hard to learn re- self-confidence. Yeah, it's about resilience, right? You've mm. got to be resilient. Um, look, the typical entrepreneur is a white guy in his 20s. So I'm none of those things. Plus, I just had a baby. So I was so sleep deprived. I was just, uh, you know, you have to fake it till you make it. I was... Downing Red Bulls before my pitch meetings, turning up, just, you know, clearly thinking they're going to think I'm this exhausted mum. So clearly just trying to, you know, show that I'm not exhausted and all the rest of it. So again, just trying to work out what those stereotypes are. Um, you know, I think you have to, um, you have to, obviously, it's not like you go in there and you completely ignore what they're saying, right? You need to listen to their feedback. Like our main investor turned us down. Uh, a year before they finally invested. So take the rejection, listen to what they're saying, and then you need to prove them wrong. You need to go out and kind of, um, you know, build your business and, and hit those milestones. But I think also you've got to remember that you're in the driving seat. Like you need to choose your investors, right? These people are going to be working with you for the next five, ten years. So you just need to keep going out and meeting enough people so that hopefully one of them will invest. But that, you know, I, I suppose... Uh... It's quite true because people will be listening and they'll be saying, well, how do you find the right yeah. investor? And actually, at the end of the day, if someone says to you, here's 20 grand and you need the 20 grand, it doesn't matter who it is. You're probably going to take the money. So did you did you reject people? Did you and and did you reject people that you that were offering money? And did you accept people that perhaps you. That's right. Yeah, 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 but yeah. did you yeah, but did yeah, you accept yeah, yeah. people that you thought, actually, yeah. I just going to accept them because yeah. they're offering money? Yeah, so if I look back to the beginning, so um, 
we all make mistakes at the beginning. Um, I think one of the key things that made a real difference to me, which I haven't mentioned yet, but was basically I started out by myself. I had this crazy idea. I won an innovation competition, so I won 100 grand. I quit my job. I hired two junior engineers. We did not have a clue what we were doing. We were never going to get anywhere. And then I met a guy called Alex Sasaley, and he had started Jawbone, which was a $3 billion wearable tech company. And I got him involved, and he became my um, main investor and then co-founder. And I do think for anybody out there who's doing it, I think the key thing is you need to find people who've been there and done it before. Like he had done consumer electronics. He had raised money. And how did you guys meet? Was that some, were you kind of looking for that person? I was out. I mean, I think at the beginning, the key thing, yeah, taking a step even further back, you just have to keep pushing. You know, I didn't know any engineers. I didn't know anybody in business. You have to just push your networks and the networks of your networks and you have to hustle. You have to go meet people. And there's all this serendipity that that goes on. You know, looking back, I'd bumped into somebody on the street who then introduced me to somebody who introduced me to Alex. There are those things where you feel like, oh, my God, if I hadn't bumped into that person on the street at that moment. But Alex, you know, was this amazing um, mentor to me and he taught me everything on the business side. And um, again, being naive, he was the one who'd be like, okay, go in, Tanya, you tell them the valuation is X and we're raising, you know, 2 million and minimum check size is 100,000 pounds. You know, he made me punch well above where we should be. But because I was so naive, I didn't even know what I was saying. I didn't yeah. even know what these numbers Getting were. The license just to and again, that's the thing. It's like this acting. You just go in and if you can just say it, uh, people react to that. Um, but yeah, it was pushing the networks, the networks. And then I think that very early stage, even though I made, you know, big mistakes, I didn't know. One of my first pitches, the guy was like, what's your cap table? Which is basically, you know, a key part of your company. And I didn't even know what it was. But I do think if, particularly angel investors, like you aren't banking on the individual, right? So if they think you've got the energy and the drive and the passion. And I think for what we were doing, it was pretty binary. Like some people just thought she's not qualified and what are they doing? And some people thought "Mm, she's a bit crazy, but if it's right, it could be big, right? Do you know what it it I, I it resonates with me so much because I remember back at you know we first started out, someone asked me what our our net profit was and I didn't even understand the term. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't even. I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know what he was saying <laughs> yeah, or asking me, and that is what's so funny. I think that once again we go back to that that original thing that we said is that people believe that they need to have all the answers. And if you don't have all the answers, yeah. then you can't run a business. But in fact, at the beginning, you're just learning to swim. It doesn't matter. People get put into, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in healthcare or you're working in, ar- you know, archaeology yeah. or whatever. Whenever you go into those businesses, you're learning from the beginning and you're just learning. It's like going back to school when everyone's just learning. Yeah. That's what it is. And the great thing is, it's like there's so many other people now doing startups. You know, it's like being on a constant freshers week. You know, you hang out at Google Campus, <laughs> you meet so many entrepreneurs and you all just... Uh, you can meet lots of people. And there's so many people willing to give advice and there's a real pay-it-forward culture, which I think is great. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I didn't know what net profit was. I didn't know any of that stuff. Uh, People laughed at me at the beginning. But you learn it quite quickly. I mean, business, really, it's like... You've got to create a product that's better than your competitors that people want to buy. Yeah, that's the simple thing. I feel thing. like it's quite straightforward. Yeah, definitely. And I think to... we talk about this a lot. You just have to put yourself out there and talk to people. Yeah. Because it take, definitely pays. It's a, Tony, listen, we've got to uh, stop there. That's the end of part one. Uh, but please uh, stick around because we have a part two, which is just a click away. Jamie, bad news. That is the end of part one. What? I know. I know. We got there so quick. But don't fear. Part two is coming right up, just one click away. So everybody that's listening, just go over and click part two. 
Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, it really does mean a huge amount. And we also hope today's podcast has inspired you to move towards your dream or passion. Now, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a comment. And if you'd like to get in touch, please email us at move at moveclub.co.uk or follow us on Instagram at moveclub. Until next time, this is Move. 